0: podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. I'm Kyle McEntee. In this episode, I interview a local government lawyer serving as in-house counsel for public safety departments. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, where you can enroll full-time or in the Weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Scene Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu.
1: Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, Neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho law provides near exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities.
0: We're joined today by Jason Hernandez, a 2019 graduate of the University of Kentucky, J. David Rosenberg College of Law. He's a county government lawyer for the Lexington-Fayette Urban County government. Almost 50 years ago, the city of Lexington government and Fayette County government consolidated into a single system. This limits the duplication of services, including legal, and is otherwise intended to make local government management more efficient. So Jason, before we get into your role with the government, let's talk a little bit about you. You were self-described
2: as a non-traditional student. Why exactly do you say that? Well, let's just say I was in law school at an age where I didn't know who Harry Potter was and I didn't really fit in with the rest <laughs> of the kids there. I was about 20 years older than they were. I started at the age of 41 back in 2016, so I'm still fairly new at the game, but definitely felt that generational gap while I was there. Although I'm, I'm very thankful to have attended when I did because I have friends now that that I hopefully have the rest of my life that I would have never had, had I gone to school when I probably wanted to or, or could have back in the 90s. So what was it that kind of pushed you off that path after college? I started working at the TV station at the college I went to, Cumberland College in Williamsburg, Kentucky. And I basically just did that for four years, just producing videos, shooting videos, appearing on TV, writing scripts, and it seemed to take me away from my initial plan of going to law school. Then I was going to go to law school and a girl I was dating at the time was going to go to med school and we never made that choice. We ended up doing different things. But uh now here I am. I had a chance after years of fairly successful work in video production to get to do things over in my early 40s, and I don't regret a moment of it. So naturally, right after law school, then you went right into that industry, and you know you worked in video production on the legal side, right? I no, absolutely, <laughs> I did not do that. I became a public defender. I had a very interesting chance before I began law school. One of my most inspirational figures in law school, Allison Conley. She started an opportunity for some kids, I think typically minority kids to come to school and do two weeks of intense preparation for law school before they actually started. And I guess I was old enough that they may have thought that I might run away after a few weeks. So they included (laughs) me in this program before we began. And during that time, I I met one of the public defenders who has become a great friend of mine, Chris Tracy here in Lexington And I spent one day with him and we went through the courts on a Friday, which is the motion hour for all felony cases here in Lexington. And I just loved getting in there and doing that. And I ended up interning with Chris for the summers during school and just became just well-versed in criminal law there with the public defender's office. And then that was the first job you took out of law school then? Yes. So I started there. After I passed the bar and and worked there a few years, did all types of cases, anywhere from dog bites to uh, murder. (laughs) Uh, It's a a wide range of intensity. Yes, definitely. Uh, It's one of those things where you just never know what you're getting into the day you get there. You know, you get a stack of new cases put on your desk and, you know, they come every day and you just have to read through them and see what you're getting yourself into. So what pushed
0: you to change paths away from public defense more towards a role just with the local government?
2: There were a few events that took place. One, I had a very hard client who I believe was threatening violence for some of the things in the case. I believe he had some mental health issues, but that was a little alarming. My friend Chris, he was just transitioning jobs. He was moving away from being my manager to a higher level So I was going to get a new manager. And then I had a murder case that was just really demanding. And I ran into a friend at, we have a racetrack here in Lexington called Keeneland, the horse racetrack. And I ran into a guy I knew and he said, well, you know, I did public defender work for a while and I'm here working for the city now and uh, we have an opening, you should apply. And so it seemed like a good idea. It was a little, you know, bumping money. And so I applied and, and Got hired about a year and a half ago in June of 2022. So let's talk a little bit about the structure
0: of the, the legal department at the urban county government. You know, There's just over 300,000 people in Lexington. So I'm really curious to know like, what that translates to in
2: terms of the number of lawyers who are required to staff a city of that size and a county of that size. I think we're about 15 lawyers strong in our department of law. We have a commissioner and we have four managing attorneys I believe four senior attorneys and then three attorneys, which I'm one of those. In what ways is the work divided? Well, I think over the years, we have a lot of people, especially in the upper management, who have been there a long time. So they've kind of carved out their spots over time and and they're good resources because at my level, I get a lot of assignments, although I'm primarily dealing with public safety. I still do some other things. I, I, I deal with police open records. I deal with code enforcement opportunities. For Where people have let their real estate become dilapidated. They try to give you kind of a a broad base of knowledge to see if anything sticks with you. And it looks like since I've been there, I'm going to stick in the litigation department, handling lawsuits, which seem to come in waves sometimes. And sometimes we just sit there and there's not any coming in. So I guess we can kind of think of this as an in house role where your clients, the government, and you just do the work that they need of you. Correct. And, you know, Our clients can vary from being police departments, parks and recreation, any type of division within the city that either has a legal question real quickly or has an issue that perhaps needs to be clarified, particularly if they're writing new policies or any type of things that affect the day-to-day function of the government, making sure that what they're thinking and what they're putting into place Is something that is lawful, you know, good to go and shouldn't have any roadblocks implementing it.
0: Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, VLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit permontlaw.edu.
1: Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online Flex JD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today.
0: Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes.
2: Can you give an example of one of these policies that you've worked on? I represent the Fayette County Detention Center, basically the jails. They have policies, operation orders all the time that they want to revise. We've had an issue with over the years, and I think it's a nationwide trend where some people in law enforcement or detention facilities for many years were not allowed to have beards when they worked due to having gas mask issues. Like if a tear gas canister that is thrown into... A group of
0: people and then because they've got the beard, the gas mask isn't actually closing
2: off, then it's unsafe, right? Yeah. So like, for instance, an N95 mask couldn't seal if you have a beard. And so there was a lawsuit by a member of the detention center because of religious beliefs and asking for a religious accommodation. And that ended up having our new director of the jail changing policy. And implementing a new operational order that allows for a certain amount of beer, quarter inch or something like that. Basically, making sure that religious accommodations are considered important, number one, and in, in that the facility can function. It's interesting because we all can see changes happening
0: at the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals. And you don't really often think about the consequences of that, you think, okay, well, that means it automatically changed. Well, no, what happens is then it's up to people like you and people you work with to figure out, okay,
2: how do we adapt the policies that we have to be compliant with the law? In law enforcement, especially a lot of the veterans are used to a very rigid standard. Sometimes convincing that point of view to change is hard and it's not anything that you can say wrong about the the veteran, just that's the way they did it when they were brought up. So now introducing this curveball of, hey, there's this Supreme Court decision says these beards are nice, they're fine, you know, they're religious accommodation, and we're going to have to to change our policy. They just have a total different experience from the way they were they were trained and the and the way they've done it for a long time.
0: Are you alone
2: in having to explain that to them, or do you have support from various places within the government? No, I. I have two or three other people in my litigation department, one particularly who just retired last week. He's a longtime military veteran. He wasn't necessarily excited about the whole beard policy coming in, but he understood he was smart enough, probably the smartest lawyer I've ever met. He was smart enough to get us out in front of this and say, hey, it's got to change and here's how we should do it. So that was very helpful having him on my team. And was he talking to the...
0: Officers, or was it just talking to you? You
2: No, we were talking to the, the director and the deputy director of the detention center because they ultimately make the policy. We advise them and they make their own decisions, but we're there to advise them on how we see things happening. They're very educated and smart enough to know that it had to change and they made the changes and everything is moving forward. So you convey the law to them
0: and then they convey the law and the reasoning to their employees and then they got to deal with the individual employees who are maybe not as happy about
2: the change as they could be. There's a meeting of the minds and dropping of the ego to to move forward and just say, hey, this is what we're dealing with. This is how we need to do it and let's move forward and, and see how it goes. You're also thinking of the safety of the employee himself who's asking for the accommodation because that mask still has to fit. So, you know, we have have a shave kit on site if people need to shave before something like that happens. And, you know, you kind of got to have that foresight. Okay, you've got your beard, you're wearing the mask, but what if this happens and we have to have you shave? You know, what are we going to do? We have to have that in the, in the policy and procedure as well. So, you know, it's interesting and predicting the future is always the hard part being the lawyer, I guess, but you kind of have to be able to see some of the issues before they happen. I think that's kind of fun too, trying to foresee different scenarios and then guarding against them and ultimately trying to protect your client, which is in this case the government. This case, I think, was two years old before it came across my desk. So I did a lot of learning on the back end, but still, you know, we work, we have a risk management division in the city. So the director of risk management has a lot of say in in the policy as far as predicting what could go wrong and how we deal with that if something does. And then, of course, we have the detention director and he is obviously the, the man who will implement the policy and then have to run it by the union for their input per our collective bargaining agreement. So there's a lot of moving parts in there and, and trying to say that you can predict things that could come up. A lot of people disagree with you sometimes if it's like, oh, that'll never happen. Or, you know, what's the likelihood of that happening? What why are we even dealing with that? You still have to be on your toes when you're writing something that's supposed to sit there and and be applicable for situations for years to come.
0: Yeah. And again, it's one thing if you're just trying to move forward a policy that is not required of you by a court. And you know, it's it's one thing to negotiate with different parties when you know, you really do have to come to a meeting of the minds, but when you have your path set for you by the law, it can probably be kind of annoying as the lawyer in the room saying, you know, you might not like this, but
2: we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And you could see that there were other decisions that came down in other courts that kind of led to this happening and just researching the way that other cities have implemented and changed their policies just kind of makes you believe as the lawyer that, hey, you know, we probably need to get in front of this as well because because it's coming. And so, it's it was interesting. I'm glad we got it finished and it seems to have worked well. So, are you only representing the departments or are there cases where you are actually also representing
0: the individuals who are working there, whether they're police officers, firefighters, or
2: individuals working at the corrections facilities? So, we do represent the departments, but we also do represent individuals who perhaps have an accident at work, say if a garbage truck hits a car or if a police officer gets sued for malicious prosecution or an unlawful arrest, then we would represent the individual in those matters. Okay, and so that means you're working on both sides of the case. Sometimes you're the plaintiff, sometimes you're the defense. We have situations, particularly at the jail, where sometimes employees will be disciplined for behavior, which puts them on the opposite end of our representation. They would have union representation there. Whereas if they were sued for something for an incident at the jail, then they kind of flip over to us and they have the right to ask us to represent them in those matters as well. So I've always found that dynamic interesting, particularly at the jail. Fortunately for me, I worked at the jail a lot as a public defender and I know a lot of the officers. And so I know for sure the hardships they endured on a daily basis. And I've seen them work probably in ways that most people in my office have never seen these officers work. So I have some empathy for them. I know what they're going through. So I try not to ever be judgmental of of the people who may f- face grievances for just policy and procedure violations and, and not seem heavy handed with them. Hopefully that shows in the the way I speak to them. I never want it to be some kind of hammer coming down because I know just as easily we could get sued tomorrow and we'd be on the same team, right? Yeah, it's really complicated (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) So, you mentioned earlier
0: that the corrections facilities officers, they, they have a really powerful
2: union. What does that relationship look like for you? Do you ever have to negotiate with that union? We negotiate a lot with the union It could be on a case-to-case basis for a discipline situation. We had a situation last year where the union was grieving a section of the collective bargaining agreement, and that took a lot of time. Basically, our government had a different interpretation than the union had, and we went to arbitrations for that and ended up settling it to everyone's benefit, I believe. We're about to start bargaining a new contract, hopefully we'll have it resolved and, and negotiated and up and running by next in January. So what are the key provisions that you're negotiating in this upcoming agreement? Well the issue I think for most detention centers around the country is is maintaining staffing. We had an issue in twenty twenty at the jail where a lot of folks who were eligible for retirement took retirement and it left a, a staffing issue that I think we're still recovering from the new director has done a really really good job of recruiting new people I know staffing is up and the city council here in Lexington authorized a pretty sizable raise for the employees to even just start work there I think staffing and maintaining staffing will always be the biggest issue in the collective bargaining agreement once staffing is is at a, a good level then I think you can start looking at the minutia of it but just having a strong contract that provides good benefits, good salary for the employees is the number one priority because it's it's a hard job. So basically, if I'm understanding correctly, from the government's perspective,
0: they're wanting to make sure that they can recruit and retain high quality staff and at the same time be cognizant of their budgets, that you can only spend so much, you can only, only commit to so many things in the future, whereas the union's coming to you and saying, we want this much money, this much of a guaranteed raise every year, these kind of benefits, these kind of procedures, one discipline happens. And then you're just going back and forth trying to decide
2: where the balance is between those who are paying and those who are getting paid. I think that's fair to say. I, I know that our city, is particularly city council, their overall budget is very, very heavy towards... Public safety, whether it be the police, the fire department, or corrections. I do think that there's also a detriment to just throwing money at a problem and saying it's going to fix everything. But, you know, money does talk. (laughs) And and people want a fair wage for their labor and to take care of their families. And that will always be, I think, the biggest thing in public safety, you know, is, is it's considered hazardous duty. Therefore, there's a little added bonus uh, in salary because of that. However, the things you said there about about grievances and discipline and things like that, those still figure into the collective bargaining agreement. Our job our priority, at least mine is, is for these processes to be described well enough in this collective bargaining agreement to where we're not hassling over, well, this is not how you're supposed to do it. It says right here, it's done this way. And then we go, no, it's done this way. It says here in the collective bargaining agreement, the CBA, that he can he can do that or she can do that. And we're saying, no, no, that's not the way we see it. <laughs> but it can get contentious at times. And then we get an arbitrator involved and then kind of go from there typically. But I, we do our best to, to try to reach an agreement before arbitration comes in. So, what is your role in the
0: negotiation? Are you at the negotiating table with the head of the union and you know, hammering out deal points or are you more on the execution side where the deal points have been agreed to, but you're trying to figure out how to write it out and make sure that you're actually reflecting what was said and then kind of seeing around corners to see like maybe what wasn't contemplated or is it all of it?
2: Well, I'm about to start the new negotiations for the CBA with the corrections union in two weeks, actually got the date today. Now the city does hire outside counsel too. We have a firm out of Cincinnati that represents us in bigger cases where we don't have the manpower to to handle, you know, a, say a, a civil case that's going to take a thousand man hours. And so they do provide corporate counsel in the CBA negotiations as well. So I will be there and I will be ready to listen. And I'm not really sure what they expect me to do when I get there but I will be there. And uh, I expect with the new leadership at the detention center to have a very amicable negotiation and for us to move forward and again, foster a relationship that's not contentious and, and one that works in unison. That's that's my goal with the CBA. And if I have any input on that, I think I would want it to end on a good handshake at the end of December and for us to move forward for a couple of years with a, a rock solid CBA, and for us to be able to move forward with good staffing and, and good morale and a safe facility, number one, because that's really the number one thing. You're not only watching and taking care of your employees' safety; you've got a constitutional duty to maintain the safety of the inmates as well. So, just protecting the safety and, and protecting the the future of the employees at the same time is should be the number one goal, at least. For me it is.
0: I'm the Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show on your favorite podcast app.